Good morning. Welcome again. Uh, I'm going to keep going with the reading that Natalie started earlier in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to pick up at verse 26 and read most of the way into chapter 12. Uh, like I mentioned, and like many of you, uh, I had a really wild week. Uh, I did not really get to this sermon until yesterday, basically. And so uh, I would covet your patience and your prayers and your grace. Uh, not just because this is a sermon that I didn't get a lot of time to work on, uh, and not just because it's a difficult passage and a difficult topic, uh, but also, too, because it's uh, difficult for some of us to hear uh, the way that the Bible speaks in to very dark, uh, evil places. Uh, we're speaking the next couple of weeks, like I said last week, uh, on these passages that speak to sexual violence, uh, the ways that God often appears absent in these situations, uh, and yet their presence in Scripture shows us that God is deeply concerned about victims, deeply concerned about those who have wronged them, uh, deeply concerned to bring redemption and healing out of it. As always, uh, if any of you would like to talk to me or uh, one of the staff members or one of the elders, we'd always be glad to talk to you, pray with you, help you to try to understand where God is in everything. Just let us know. Let's, let's read. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 26. Uh, you heard uh, earlier from Natalie's reading, David commanded his general to figure out a way to kill Uriah. Uh, we're jumping forward a bit. That's now happened. Uh, he made sure that Uriah died. He wrote back to David and explained what he had done. And now we pick up at 2 Samuel eleven twenty-six. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing. And because he had no pity, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. 
David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while your child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, every week we pray that you would deliver us from evil. And so once again, we ask for your deliverance from the evils we have committed and from the evils that have been committed against us. Use this passage to show us your presence and your vision over all the dark and painful things in this world. Show us most of all the redemption you offer through Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Some of us have had the very painful and disorienting experience of seeing somebody whom we admired being revealed as something far worse than they initially appeared. Something like that's happening now in the story of David. Uh, if you've been around as we've gone through the book of Samuel, you've seen that for the most part, we've been seeing him as a great hero. He's been an example of piety and of patience. He's the humble shepherd whom God raised up as king to bring about his glorious purposes on earth. I've tried to point out to you the couple of places where the text was giving us some glimmers that not everything is well in David's heart or in his kingdom. But by and large, David has been a welcome contrast for us against the self-absorption of his doomed predecessor, Saul. In 2 Samuel 7, you might remember that God made these sweeping promises to David about how his kingdom would always enjoy God's blessing, that God would never take it away from him or his family like he did with Saul. In the following few chapters after that, we saw David moving from success to success, both morally and politically. Our text today is framed 
by continued political success. It begins and it ends with David's successful conquest of his enemies, the Ammonites. On the outside, David's career is going very well. Uh, To just about anybody who's watching, he still looks like a very good king. But in chapters 11 and 12, in between these two frames about how great uh, his outward career is going, uh, in between, the story slows way, way, way down from what we're used to. Uh, The focus is not so much on David's political success there in the background for us, but rather the passage is holding our eyes open to gaze upon his disastrous spiritual failure and its horrific effects on those around him. We are horrified to see that the great hero David is not what he's appeared to be. And so the text is driving us to look beyond David to see whether and how God is going to bring about his promises about his kingdom on earth. The whole entire story in these two chapters revolves around the language of sight. Who sees what? What can be hidden from whom? Most of all, this story is concerned with what God sees and how God sees it. Is David going to learn to see the way God sees? Are we? So I've got four headings today, all playing on this idea of God's vision. First thing that we need to see is that God sees evil doers. God sees evil doers, even when it's his own chosen king. Uh, The Ammonite war that started in chapter 10 is proceeding swimmingly, we are told at the beginning of the chapter. But oddly, we are told that David is kicking back in Jerusalem. You see that in chapter 11, verse 1. David is on his own. Uh, The story quickly reveals for us that he is shirking his vocation as God's warrior king. He is functioning like God's not there. David is functioning through this story like he's autonomous, like he's independent of God and of his presence and of his law. You hear one afternoon David get up from lounging on his bed. He goes up to pace on his rooftop deck and he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman going through the ritual washing that Moses had prescribed for women at the end of their monthly cycle. Uh, This is not a story about a woman bathing naked uh, where David could see her. There is absolutely nothing in this story that suggests that she's being suggestive or immodest or that David is doing anything other than lecherously preying upon her. David sends messengers to find out more about her. They inform him that she's Bathsheba. She is the daughter of one of his top soldiers, and she's married to another one of his top soldiers, almost certainly multiple decades younger than David. But none of that deters him. In this burst of verbs that underscore David's initiative, we hear that he sends for her, he takes her, he sleeps with her. Nowhere does he speak to her. Nowhere does he even use her name. 
this story is often described as adultery, which I suppose is technically true. But I think uh, thinking of it in that way cuts David way too much slack. It implicates Bathsheba in a way that the text never does. There's never an excuse for adultery, no matter how intense your emotions or your intentions. But we need to understand that this is not a story about two tragically star-crossed lovers. This is a story about theft. It's a story about coercion. It's a story about a powerful, self-absorbed king coldly and crudely violating a vulnerable subject. We hear many of the same kinds of stories in our world. With a bunch of references in these chapters to David taking Bathsheba, you are getting a throwback way back earlier in the story to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Remember that when the prophet Samuel warned the people of Israel, they come to him and they want a king like the nations have that will fight their battles for them. And Samuel warns them. He says, you don't want a human king because you know what human kings do? They take. They take and they take and they take. He will make you his slaves. You're seeing that David, as great as he's been, is actually fundamentally no different than Israel's other kings are going to be, let alone how the kings and the rest of the world function. David is a disappointment. Part of the idea here is that you should not put your hope into merely, any merely human king. But at the same time, we are getting a throwback to the earlier part of the story of Samuel, but we're getting an even larger throwback to the very beginning of the Bible. It shows us that this is not just a story about human kings, but that this is a story about humans, period. Uh, this language about seeing something that's beautiful or good, same word, and then taking it in violation of God's commands, that's all straight out of Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve similarly think that they can autonomously live apart from God and his law, that they can take whatever they want, even when he's told them not to take it, because it looks good to them. In a real sense, David is a mirror for every one of us. David is the mirror showing us the horror of our own sin and its consequences for others, even if we don't ever actually commit the same sins as David did. Bathsheba falls prey to the assault of David's lust, but as it often does, the consequences of sin ripple outward. The only word she ever says comes by way of a messenger to David. I'm pregnant. She reverts to silence. David still shows no concern for her. He still says nothing to her. He doesn't even show any concern for his child. And so now comes something that we have heard of and know all too well in our world, the cover-up. David has always been the man of action. And so in verse 6, he orders his general, send me Uriah the Hittite. In verse 7, he repeatedly asks Bathsheba's husband about the welfare, uh, the peace, the shalom of the war and of the troops, which of course is ironic given the chaos that David is inflicting and is going to inflict on Bathsheba and on Uriah. 
but he then sends Uriah home, assuming that a night at home with his wife is going to help shield him from the blame for her pregnancy. But in verse 9, you see that Uriah the Hittite, this Gentile man, is a far better man than David is. He's far more concerned to do what's right and honorable. He's far more able to control his desires, not just in solidarity with the king or with his men, but also uh, with respect for God, who at this point in Israel's history has forbidden Israel's soldiers from otherwise legitimate sexual activity while they're engaged in defensive campaigns. So Uriah sleeps outside, not in his own house. And then when David uh, very strangely pesters him about it the next day, uh, he says to David, why would I go down to enjoy the comforts and the pleasures of my own home when God says that we've got something far more important to focus on? David, of course, has only thought about himself. He's totally disregarded not only Bathsheba, but also his soldiers and his God. All of this is underscoring how spiritually and morally unmoored David has become. So his first attempt at a cover-up has failed, and so he moves on to another bloodier cover-up, verse 14. Uh, Not today's version of the bloody cover-up. There's no Planned Parenthood where he can take her, but instead he can send off Uriah to to his death in battle. David writes a letter to his general. He says, put Uriah in a place where he's going to be killed. Joab does so. Joab kind of tweaks the plan a little bit to make it look not so obvious that something strange is going on. He has a few other men killed around him so that it looks like a legitimate maneuver. And then Joab sends David a letter telling him that his murderous order has been carried out. Verse 25, David shows no remorse about the death of Uriah or the other men around him, but instead cynically tells Joab not to worry about it. He says, don't let this matter displease you. Literally, he says, don't let this be evil in your eyes. It's just the way it goes in war. Except, of course, we know it's not. Uriah's death and the deaths of the soldiers around him were orchestrated. David knows that. Joab knows that. We know that. But nevertheless, David instructs the messenger to encourage Joab. Tell him to move on. Don't worry about it. There's not going to be any consequences. Problem solved. It's our little secret. And so David now takes Bathsheba as his own wife. He adds her to the collection of wives that he's been making all through this narrative. That the, this is the, these are these bits that have been warning us that everything's not right with David. That David uh, has this proclivity uh, for sexual lust for women that is now going to destroy him. David thinks his cover-up has been successful, but then in verse 27, for the first time, God appears in the story. Did you notice that God is never mentioned until this point? You just have David's sin and the misery he's inflicting on the people around him. But verse 27, God finally invades. It says that the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. David's eyes had landed on Bathsheba. And then he told Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. But you see here, so to speak, that God also has eyes. That God sees evildoers, but that he also watches out for their victims. You can see that by the careful attention that the passage is giving to what's been done to Bathsheba and to the grief that it's caused her. And so you see that God is not actually absent. 
Some of us have been in very dark places. We've had very dark things done to us. And it often appears to us in those times that God does not see. That God is not there. That God does not care at all. That he won't do anything about it. But you see here in this story that God is not just watching in the bare sense of knowing about what happens but remaining powerless to do anything about it or indifferent to all of it like he's just this platonic floaty thing up there just doesn't care. He's far above the concerns of this world. But what you see here, not just that God knows about it, not just that God sees it, but that it's evil in his eyes. David thought he could live independently of the goodness and the beauty and the truth of a holy God and his holy law. He thought that his privileges and his power meant that he could feed his own desires without any consequences. And so all through chapter 11, David has seemed to be in the driver's seat. He's sending his servants and his victims wherever he wants. He's sending messages wherever he wants, ordering people around. But now in chapter 12, God confronts David. God sends his own message. How depressing this story would be if this is where it ended. God doing nothing about it. The passage has shown us that God sees evildoers, shows us that he watches over their victims. But now with this message of the prophet Nathan, it shows us that God is looking for repentance. It's looking for repentance. David has become shockingly calloused to God's law. But you see the way that God gets through to him indirectly by way of a story about horrible injustice. Nathan shows up and he says, hey David, there's two men. One of them is really rich. He has everything he could ever want. The other one's really poor. He has nothing but a little lamb. The rich man has somebody over for lunch. He doesn't feel like getting anything out of his own commercial-sized deep chest freezer. And so instead, he just takes the lamb from this poor guy. He slaughters it. He devours it. He washes it down with a really good bottle of red wine. He wipes his mouth with a nice white little napkin. What's the poor man going to do about it? And so as the king, David is the highest judge in Israel. And so he's outraged, as he should be, to hear about this happening in his kingdom. He says, the man who's done this deserves to die. He's horrified by the cruelty of it all. But then in verse 7, Nathan goes for the jugular. He says to David very emphatically, You are that man. You see, through Nathan, God is confronting David with the awful evil of what he's done. In spite of God giving him everything, God providing him everything he could ever want, making all these wonderful promises to him, David acted like God was not there. Like God just did not matter. Like God was about two inches tall, could be shoved into your pocket to be removed when you needed him. David just took whatever he wanted without any regard for God or his standards. And so in verse 9, God says to him, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what's evil in his eyes. In verse 10, God says that doing all this uh, meant that David was actually despising God himself. And in verse 14, that doing all this meant that he utterly scorned the Lord. So you can see that when David was despising Uriah, and especially Bathsheba in their weakness, 
when he was treating them like they were nothing but tools to be used and cast aside for his own pleasure and his own purposes, that when he was despising them, he's actually despising God. And so in this word of confrontation, this angry message of condemnation, you're actually seeing the goodness and the grace of God. You're seeing that God does see, that God does care, that evil does not have the final word. But you also see God's grace in David's repentance. In verse 13, David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. When God had confronted Saul about his sin, which uh, was largely much uh, more innocuous than what David has done, when God confronted Saul about his sin, he made excuses. He shifted the blame. He covered up. But David, who has committed far worse sins, simply owns it all. He's seeing the way that God sees. Under the Mosaic law, sexual assault and murder are capital crimes. There is no animal sacrifice available for anybody who has committed these crimes in Israel. There's no way to atone for these sins. The only outcome is execution. But shockingly, Nathan says to him, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David understands, David admits that he deserves to be executed even though he's the king. The king too is under God's law. We've seen how truly horrific David's sin was. But at the same time, in the face of his simple, honest repentance, God forgives him. This is meant to shock you. At some level, this should be offensive to us, that God can forgive something so egregious, so cruel, so wicked. David doesn't grovel around on the floor He's not given a list of things he must do in hopes that God will maybe one day start listening to him or start caring about him. God just forgives him. And so what an encouragement that should be for us today, for those of us who are mired in guilt and in shame over our sin. Some of us have been involved in our own bloody cover-ups of our own sexual sins. Some of us have deeply wronged other people. We've used other people. We've abused them. You need to hear that there is abundant forgiveness available to you from the God whom you've offended. All you have to do is repent. But that does not mean that there are no consequences. Many of us today are dealing with the repercussions of sin, our own or others, even if God has forgiven them. Nathan tells David, he says, yes, hallelujah, God forgives you, God is not going to give you what you deserve, but David, your sin is going to leave huge scars across your life, across your family's life, down the generations, this is going to introduce enormous chaos. The whole rest of the story of 2 Samuel is all about these scars working their way out through David's kingdom. In this world, Bathsheba is never going to get her husband back. She's always going to carry the weight of what David's done to her. And on top of that, God says to David that the son whom you've conceived is going to die instead of you. And then he promises that David's family and kingdom are always going to be marked by violence and misery. 
the consequences begin with the sickness and the death of David and Bathsheba's child. Verse 15. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Some of us here this morning have lost children, but I want you to understand that it was not necessarily like with David here because of some sin that you committed. David's situation and story is highly unique. Please do not take away from this story that God killed your child because of something you did. The Bible does teach that all humans from conception onward deserve to die. And that God has every right to take our lives from us whenever and however he wants. It's deeply mysterious, especially with regard to children. And I or your elders would be glad to talk with you anytime about the mystery of that. In this baby boy's case, his death is a form of discipline and punishment on David. In the same kind of way that the death of the firstborn children in Egypt at the Exodus was God's judgment upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians. But even though David is totally owning his sin and its consequences, you hear in verse 16 that he seeks God on behalf of the child. You see, David knows that God is just, that he deserves everything he's getting. But David also knows that God is a gracious and merciful God. And so even though God has said to him, your son's going to die, David still goes to the Lord in prayer and worship. God seeks God's mercy and favor for the child. And so his servants are baffled by all this. When the child is still living, David is earnestly seeking God. He says in verse 22, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live. But when the child dies, God ex- or David accepts God's decision as painful and as mysterious as it is. He knows that he's going to go to be with his child in the life to come. Many of us cling to this verse as a reminder that our children will be with us in heaven. But David also knows that his son is not going to come back to him in this world. Even when we have disastrously failed like David did. Even when you acknowledge the justice of God's commands and our discipline. This is showing us that we can And we should still go to the Lord as a God of steadfast love and mercy for the undeserving. Don't forget that whenever and however you see the horror of your own sin. God is a God of mercy and love. God sees evildoers. He watches over their victims. He looks for repentance. And now finally, the text shows us that God focuses on redemption. In chapter 12, verse 24, you hear that David and Bathsheba now conceive a second son, Solomon. We read that the Lord loved him, sent a message by Nathan the prophet so that little Solomon picks up a nickname because of whatever was in that message. His nickname is Jedidiah, which means the love of Yahweh. So in these chapters, what you're seeing is that God does not only send a word of confrontation He does not just send a word of forgiveness, but that now also we see him sending this word of love, this word of hope and redemption. In the midst of sin and assault and death and misery 
God is bringing life and restoration. Solomon himself, this little baby, is going to end up as a moral failure, far worse than David. But it's through Solomon that Jesus himself is going to come. Bathsheba is going to be honored to ever and always have her name inscribed in Jesus' family tree. David has already proven himself to be a massive disappointment. No merely human king can give us the peace and the harmony that we need and long for. In the end, even the Davids of the world end up taking and taking and taking. But Jesus, God in the Davidic flesh, Jesus is the king who gives even his very life. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who did not deserve to die. He is the only man who could ever claim to truly be God's rightful king. And yet he came not only speaking God's word of confrontation and comfort, but also embodying it. He embodied this word from God in his life, a life of anger and rage toward abusers, a life of love, not only for those who sin, but also for those who are sinned against. And then he also embodied God's word in his death. His death as a demonstration of God's holy hatred against evil and injustice and oppression, but also his death as a giving up of his life, as the ultimate victim of violence, so that we might enjoy the peace and the healing that God has promised to us in him and through his kingdom. By the cross of Jesus, more than ever, we know that God sees. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice that you are the God who sees. Some of us need to be confronted. Some of us need to be warned. And so we ask that you would see us in our sin and lead us to repentance. Others of us need to be comforted. Others of us need to be pointed beyond the darkness to the light of the coming redemption. For those of us here, show us too that you see in a different way. You are watching over us. You are watching over this world. So often it seems like you aren't, but you are. Help us to know that. Comfort us and assure us. We pray in Jesus' name, our great and holy King. Amen.